You guys can turn to Ephesians chapter 2. You may have noticed some changes this morning up here on the stage. We had a choir, which is awesome. Hope we can do that every week. We had a new song, Bride, which uh, our worship team wrote. Um, We have new artwork. Last week it just said Alive. Today it says Alive Together. All of those changes are intentional. Because we're at the point in the book where Paul moves from individuals to community. From this point on, for the rest of the book of Ephesians, it's no longer about you and me. It's about us. All of us together as a community. Now, you probably know enough about the Apostle Paul to know that he doesn't pull his punches. And so as he begins to talk about community, he goes right for the jugular. He talks about racism. And so that's where we're going to go this week. We're going to talk about racism and racial superiority. We're going to talk about... These things that have plagued our country for a long time now. Now think back for a little bit to your childhood. I'm guessing most of us have stories from our childhood where we saw racism face to face for for the first time maybe. A couple stories from me. Both happened in the 80s. I kind of grew up, most of my childhood was during the 80s. Uh, I remember one story. I was with a friend and his dad and we were working on their car in the garage and And his dad was a Christian man, went to church every Sunday. If I remember right, he was actually a leader, like a deacon in their church. And in the midst of working on this car, he told a joke that culminated in the N-word. And it was about how African Americans were such idiots, in his opinion. Now, even as a little kid, I knew, man, you do not say that word. I felt really awkward. But he was an authority figure. I didn't know what to do at the moment. It just, it seared that memory on my mind. Second example around the same time. I was watching the evening news with a group of elderly people, all white elderly people. And a a news story came on about how the percentage of Hispanics in the United States was rapidly rising. And all of a sudden, these white elderly people around me got very afraid. You could see it. They were agitated. Began to talk about how... This country is getting taken over by the Mexicans. There's going to be no place left for us white people. Now, both of those stories are clearly racist. It's never okay to say any of that stuff. I knew that even when I was in elementary school. But now that I'm older, I have a better sense of what was going on in the minds of those people that motivated them to say such hateful things. Here's what I've learned over the last 41 years of life All division within the human race, whether you're talking about race or economics or ethnicity or or political affiliation, whatever divides us, all divisions within the human race are built off of two roots. Twin roots of all divisions are pride and fear. Pride, you see that in the first story. So my friend's dad, why did he tell a racist joke? Well, out of pride, because he believed his race was superior to another race. His race was intelligent, that race was not intelligent, and so it excused telling a horrible joke. Second story, that was fueled by fear. See, these elderly white people, they had placed their security in their race. Demographically, being part of the majority in the United States gave them a feeling of comfort. And when that majority was threatened, now all of a sudden their security is threatened. They became afraid. 
that they were going to lose out in life. And, and I've thought for years about what is going on in that fear. What motivates that fear that I saw that day? And what I realized is that fear is motivated by seeing life as a zero-sum game. What's a zero-sum game? Well, it's a situation where resources are limited. So whatever you get is less that I get. So if your tribe gets more of the pie, my tribe gets less of the pie. And so we are automatically in competition with one another. Tribes can't love other tribes. Tribes must all compete with one another for the limited pie of life. And so even as a, as a young man, I was already seeing pride and fear, these twin roots of all racism and, and all that divides us. This isn't just a race thing. I'll give you a couple other examples. Pride and fear is what divides the different classes, the economic classes. This is what's behind class warfare. So here in America, we have the rich class, the upper class. We have the middle class and we have the poor class. And, and for most of us in this room, I'm guessing most of us fit somewhere in that middle class. Now, I've noticed over the years that for those of us in the middle class, we tend to look down on both of the other classes. So you'll hear a lot of middle class talk about how the rich class, well, they're selfish and they're unchristian and unkind and just horrible people. And I'll hear people in the middle class look down on the poor class, also the lower classes, well, they're just lazy. If they would just work hard, then they'd be able to work themselves out of that. Well, that's pride and fear at work in the hearts of the middle class. It's pride looking at the rich as immoral and the poor as lazy. It's fear when we in the middle class vote for policies and politicians that enrich us at the cost of all others because we're seeing life in America as a zero-sum game. And so you see pride and, and fear behind all class divisions. You see it also behind all political divisions. We live in a time here in America where politics is incredibly fractured. There's, there's all this push towards the poles and strife, and that comes out of pride and fear. And so think for a moment about how the media and, and what you see on Facebook, what does it tell you about uh, people who do like Donald Trump? Well, it tells you that people who do like Donald Trump are ignorant racists who are going to destroy our country. And what does it tell you about people who do not like Donald Trump? Well, they are immoral snowflakes who are going to destroy our country. What have we done? We've destroyed the middle. There there is no middle where we can compromise and where we can care for each other and where we can even converse. What we've done is push everyone to the polls and demonize the other side. What is that? That's pride and fear taking root in the human heart. That's why the human race is divided. But here's the key. That's nothing new. Sometimes we talk about how it's so much worse today. No, it's always been so much worse. All the way back to the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11, when God divided the races, from that moment on, there has never been a second on the planet Earth where it was free of racism or hatred. This division within the human race has always been here, fueled by the pride and fear that have always been part of the human heart. And so it's no surprise that the Bible often tackles this this issue of racism and division within the human race. In many places it talks about that. Our passage this morning is just one of those places. So let's jump into what our passage talks about this morning. It begins with the problem of division between people. So look at chapter 2. Let's start in verse 11. 
Paul says, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So Paul sees the human race as divided into two basic groups, the Jews, Those are all the genetic descendants of Abraham's grandson, Jacob. And then the Gentiles. That is literally everyone else on earth. So Jews plus Gentiles equals all humans who've ever lived. Well, Paul is telling us that the Jews had some amazing privileges that God had given them. He'd given them the covenants of promise. He'd given them the temple. He'd given them the law. He had given them amazing things that he had not given to the Gentiles. And that leads to the very sad verse 12. All this bad news in verse 12. But the key to understanding verse 12 is that this, verse 12, is never what God wanted for the Gentiles. Verse 12 isn't about God's intention for Gentiles. No, God has always loved the Gentiles and always wanted to save the Gentiles. And that's very good news because most of us in this room are Gentiles. You see that throughout the Bible. You see women like Rahab and Ruth, both of whom were Gentiles, whom God not only saved but brought into the family of Israel. And actually, they ended up becoming part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. That's the highest honor you get in the Old Testament. So God has always loved the Gentiles, and so it was actually God's purpose in blessing the Jews to bless the Gentiles. That's the thing that the Jews never got. All these incredible blessings in the Old Testament they weren't meant for the Jews. They were meant for the whole world. The point is, bless the Jews so they become a blessing to everyone else. That's always how God's blessing works. You are blessed so you can be a blessing to others. God's blessings in your life obligate you to share with those who do not have. Okay, so God blessed the Jews so that they would become a blessing to the whole world. You see that, just a few examples. In the giving of the Abrahamic covenant, the foundation of all that was good in Israel, Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The whole point of God choosing and blessing the Jews was so that they would become the conduit of blessing to all people on earth. To all the Gentiles. You see that with the law that God gives. Exodus 19. And you Israel shall be through the law to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, what is the job description of a priest? A priest helps people find and follow God. That's simply what it means to be a priest. Helps people find and follow God. And so the entire nation of Israel was chosen by God to be priests to the rest of the world, helping all Gentiles find and follow God. That was their mission in life. Third example, this one's from latter parts of the Old Testament, the prophets, Isaiah 56. God says, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. God wants all nations coming to him in prayer and in worship. And so he blessed the Jews so that they could be a blessing to all people. But instead, the Jews hoarded their blessings and hated the Gentiles. Why? What's his two roots? It's pride and it's fear. 
It's pride. So, so what happened with the Jews and pride? Well, the Jews allowed their privileges to fuel pride in their hearts. They began over the centuries to see their privileged status before God as proof that they were better than other people. We have the covenants. They do not. That proves that God likes us more than them. We have the law. They do not. That proves we're better people than the rest of them. And so the Jews began to see themselves as better than all the Gentiles. So much so, they began to actually to, to view Gentiles as, as so unclean and so unholy that you couldn't even eat with them. That wasn't God's law. That was, that was what the Jewish custom started into. And so by the time we get to Peter in the New Testament, here's what Peter says. He, he's just being a good Jew when he says this. Peter said to the Gentiles, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. When he says against the law, not against God's law, against our law. Because we viewed ourselves as so much better than Gentiles, we wouldn't even walk into their homes. If you know the story, God actually had to give Peter a dream, a vision, a crazy supernatural thing to show Peter, no, you're not better. The Jews had allowed their privileges, their blessings to prove to them, to convince them that they were better than other people. So pride fueled this racial uh, segregation, this racism in the hearts of the Jews. So did fear. The Jews let a zero-sum mentality of life fuel fear. So the Jews feared the Gentiles. That was not totally unfounded. The Gentiles had not been very nice to the Jews. They ruled over them. They oppressed them for centuries before Paul came along. And so the Jews, because of all that oppression, they they began to believe that life overall was a zero-sum game. The better life is for the Gentiles, the worse it is for us. So we have to hoard the blessings of God. We have to keep them for ourselves, for our children, for our grandchildren to protect our way of life from those awful Gentiles. And so the Jews turned inward. It became about them only against everyone else. So what Paul's doing for us is he's showing us just one more example of racism in the human race. One of many examples. Jews and Gentiles both hated each other. They didn't like each other. Why? Because fear and pride were at work in all of them. So, the human race is divided by race, by ethnicity, by economic class, by all kinds of things. What do we do with that bad news? Well, Paul next gives us the solution. And, and we actually we learned about this last week. This is where the two passages connect. Jesus is our solution. Paul says that Jesus is our peace. He is our hope for reconciliation. Look with me starting in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity and he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the father the key word here is peace and the key line if you want to underline something it's the beginning of verse 14 that's everything for he himself is our peace 
Jesus doesn't just make peace. He is peace. Now, what's significant here is the word peace in the Bible means a lot more than it does in English. The English word peace, it tends to mean a cessation of hostilities between two groups that are at war. Okay, that, that's not the biblical idea. The, the biblical meaning is far richer. It's not, it's not cessation of hostilities. It's reconciliation. It's the restoration of a relationship. So peace in the Bible doesn't just mean that two groups now tolerate each other. It means that those two groups so love each other that they unite together into one group. That's biblical peace. You, you come together into one family. And so Paul tells us that Jesus is our source of, of that kind of reconciling peace in, in two different senses. First of all, Jesus brings vertical peace, vertical reconciliation between the human being and God. He talks about how Jesus has brought us near to God. We now have access to, to the one Father and the one Spirit. This takes us back to last week. We talked about the gospel. We learned from the first three verses of this chapter that our friends and family who don't know Jesus are not okay. They're not doing fine. Life is as bad for them as it could possibly be because they're slaves of sin and Satan and the world and they are under God's wrath. That's incredibly bad news. That's true for all human beings, not just the good human beings, for all human beings. And that's what the Jews didn't understand. The Jews thought that because of all the blessings they'd received from God, that they had a leg up on the Gentiles, that God, w- God must have liked them. God was good with them. But Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, what then? Are, are we Jews better than they, Gentiles? Not at all, for we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. So neither Jews nor Gentiles were okay with God. Until Jesus came. We talked about that last week. Jesus came and he died on the cross and he rose from the dead to kill sin and to bring about life. By going to the cross, Jesus made it possible for sinners like us to be reconciled to the Father and become his children. We have this remarkable verse, John 1, 12. But as many as received him, Jesus, as many as believed in him, to them he gave the right To become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. If you have trusted in Jesus, then God has given you the right to call yourself his child. And that's crazy. We say that all the time in church without recognizing we're talking about the absolutely holy, almighty creator of heaven and earth. And here we are, limited, fallible, sinful, evil creatures. And he says, you get to call me dad. And I will call you son. I will call you daughter. Why? Because of Jesus. That's why we sang the song, the cross has the final word. When you feel unworthy, when you feel unloved, you look at the cross and remember, no, I'm not. I am a child of God, not because I earned it, but because Jesus earned it for me. So that's the good news of the gospel. We trust in Jesus that he died for our sins and rose from the dead. And that gives us eternal life. That reconciles us with the Father so that we're now in his family. Okay, we all enter the family of God on equal terms. Doesn't matter if you're Jew, doesn't matter if you're rich, doesn't matter if you're an overall moral person. We all get into the family of God through faith in Jesus. So Jesus has reconciled us as individuals to the Heavenly Father, but he has also reconciled us in a second way. Horizontal reconciliation. Jesus brings peace not just between the person and God, but between people. 
He brings us all together into one family. You'll notice Paul says that Jesus abolished in his flesh the enmity, which is the law. He broke down this dividing wall. What Paul's talking about is that the Jews had turned the, the Mosaic law, which was a beautiful thing. It was meant for good. They turned it into a system to exclude Gentiles. They turned it into something to feed their pride and push the Gentiles away. And so Jesus came and he satisfied the Mosaic law and set it aside. Mosaic law is no longer in effect. Jesus died for it on the cross and set it aside so the Jews can't use it any longer to exclude the Gentiles. Paul goes on and says that Jesus put to death the enmity that divides the human race. He slayed all the divisions in the human race. How did he do that? Well, Jesus destroyed divisions in the human race by killing the twin roots, pride and fear. When Jesus went to the cross, he destroyed pride and fear. Let let me try to explain that to you. So Jesus destroyed pride. How did he do that? Well, remember where the chapter began. You got to see this whole chapter. It's one one story. So back up to two, one through three. What did you bring to the table when you sat down with God for the first time? Well, nothing good. He brought sin, slavery, evil, Satan, wrath, all bad stuff. Doesn't matter what race you come from. Doesn't matter what economic class you come from. Doesn't matter how good your life looked. All we brought was bad to the table when we sat down with God for the first time. It was Jesus who brought everything good. And ultimately, that's what racists don't understand. The guy who's a white supremacist, he doesn't understand this point. He brought nothing to the table when he sat down with Jesus. Maybe he hasn't sat down with Jesus yet. If he does, he'll bring nothing to the table. There is no advantage that any race has over any other race. No tribe has any advantage over any other tribe. We are all equally losers before God. All races, classes, all tribes are equally foolish, lost, evil, and hopeless apart from Jesus. So if you want to kill racism, teach depravity. That's the key. You kill racism by teaching people how utterly hopeless they were apart from Jesus. Jesus killed pride. Second, he killed fear. How did Jesus destroy our fear? Well, remember, fear in the human heart is fed by the belief that life is a zero-sum game. Okay, so the more you get, the less I get. It's, it's, the, it's the view of life as, as a limited pie. It's this big. That's all that life offers. So if you take a piece of the pie, that's less for me. Okay, but what did Jesus say? Look back at chapter 1 for a second. Chapter 1, verse 3. This is the most important verse in the whole book, so you can circle this one. Big idea. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Underline that phrase, every spiritual blessing. That's true for every one of us. In other words, in God's kitchen, there is infinite pie. There is not a a limited pie. And if somebody gets a piece, that's one less piece. No, it's infinite pie for all of us. There are not limited resources. Life is not a zero-sum game in the family of God. God has infinite blessing available for all of us. So I don't need to be afraid That my pie is getting used up. I don't need to be afraid that I have to protect my tribe. Whether that means my race or my ethnic group, my economic group, whatever that is. I I don't have to protect it because there's plenty of God's blessings to go around for all of us. So let me make this really practical. I came across an article this week. 
2015 study was done. It found that here in the United States, by 2020, the majority of babies born in the U.S. will not be white. It went on to say that by 2040, the United States will no longer be a majority white nation. You know what? I'm totally fine with that. Why? Because I don't find any of my security in my racial identity. That that has nothing to do with how I feel blessed in this world. I, I don't have to be white to trust in God's goodness. I don't have to be in the majority position in the U.S. to know that God will take care of me. My whiteness is nothing compared to my in Christness. And that can never be taken away. That's available for all of us, and it's an infinite source of blessing. So we don't have to be afraid when we see demographics shifting. There's no security found in demographics. It's all found in Christ. And so that reality, it slays our fear. It kills it. There's no reason to be afraid that I have to protect my tribe because my tribe is meaningless compared to being in Christ. That gives us peace. It gives us confidence. It gives us joy. There's enough pie for all of us in Jesus. So we don't have to be afraid of missing out. So Jesus defeated our pride and our fear. And he did that so that God can now unite all people, um, all tribes, into his one new family, the church. And that's why we sang that song this morning, Bride. The whole point of that song is this beautiful vision that God is in the process of uniting all people from different tribes and races and ethnicities and groups into one beautiful new multi-ethnic, multi-varied family. Paul talks about that at the end of our passage. Look again at chapter 2. Let's pick it up in verse 19. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And the point of this is that in this new thing that God is building, this new beautiful church, there are no insiders and outsiders. All of us are brought in on equal terms. And this this beautiful new family, this beautiful new church, it is not built upon race or economics or nationality. It's built on Jesus himself and on his word as revealed by his apostles and prophets. This new church that God is bringing together invites all of us in on equal terms. So let's, let's now bring this home. Let's think about what does this actually mean for you. Well, if you have trusted in Jesus, what this means is that you now have a new tribe that trumps all other tribes. What I mean by that is that each and every one of us have tribes that we belong to, some by birth, some by choice. So for me, what tribes do I belong to? Well, I'm white. It's my my racial tribe. I'm I'm male. That's my gender tribe. Uh, I'm middle class. I'm a U.S. citizen. Maybe more important, I'm a Texan. I'm an Aggie. Uh, I'm college educated. Uh, I was an engineer at at school. And um, politically, um, I'll keep that one to myself, but there's a political card in there as well. (laughs) So I have a bunch of tribes that I belong to, and there's nothing wrong with any of that. 
all of us have these tribal identities, and some of them we couldn't change even if we wanted to. Some we've chosen, some we've worked for. There's no guilt in belonging to any of those tribes, but here's the key. All of those tribes are now insignificant compared to the fact I belong to the in Christ tribe. This church tribe that I belong to, it now trumps everything else. And so practically speaking, what that means, here I am, a white guy. I have more in common with a black believer than a white non-believer. Because our, our in Christ identity trumps our racial identity. If you are rich, you have more in common with a poor believer than a rich non-believer. Now, here's the one that will blow your mind. If you really love Donald Trump, you have more in common with a Christian who does not than a non-Christian who does. Now flip it. If you really can't stand Donald Trump, you have more in common with a Christian who loves him than a non-Christian who doesn't. Why? Because our in-Christ identity, our in-Christ tribe, trumps all other tribes. And, and actually, that's the beauty of this whole thing. What is God doing in the church? He is showing the world that he is better. How is he doing that? By unifying together people who could never get along out in the world. That's the beauty of the church. Not that we're the same. God doesn't want us to be the same. He wants all races, all ethnicities, all classes, all political persuasions represented and celebrated and loved here. Because that's the supernatural beauty of the church. That in this place, we don't just tolerate one another, we can love one another. Even when we are radically different than one another. That's what God wants to build here. One united family, one united bride of people who are from every different walk of life, every different race, every different ethnicity, every different political persuasion, who would not have been able to stand each other before Christ, who can now selflessly love each other in Christ. So that's the goal that God has for us. There is, however, a problem. That kind of unity does not come easy. When Jesus died on the cross, he killed the power of, of pride and fear, but he didn't remove them from our hearts. And so they're still there. Pride lives in you. Fear lives in you. And, and you can resist them through the power of his Holy Spirit, but if you just do what comes naturally to you, pride and fear will win the day and poison your relationships with people who are different than you. So, so the beautiful unity that that Jesus wants. It's, it's hard. That's why throughout the history of the church, you see racism right here in the church. You see it uh, a number of years ago, Gandhi, incredible man, had an incredible impact on the world. He's a Hindu, but he heard a lot of things about Jesus and he was curious. He wanted to know more, he wanted to understand why do people worship Jesus. And so one Sunday morning, he went to a church in Calcutta to hear about Jesus and he got to the front doors and the ushers turned him away. Because that particular church was only for white people and high caste Indians, and he was neither. And so he said, well, if you don't want me, then I don't want you. And he turned his back on Christianity. What an incredible tragedy in that moment, a missed opportunity. Why? Because even here within the church, if we do what comes naturally to us, we will still choose pride and fear. And racism will thrive. 
So if we're going to become this beautiful bride, this united family from every race and every group united together, it takes work from each one of us. We have to work. And so I'm going to walk you through what exactly do you have to do to be part of this solution, to help this body of Christ grow into this beautiful family that God wants. Three steps, um, if you want to remember them easily. Hip, humble, initiate, proclaim. That's the goal here. So let's start out with the first one. You've got to humble yourself before God. If you're going to be part of this reconciliation, the first thing you need to do is go before God. You've got to get on your knees and you've got to surrender to God all your tribes. All of your tribal identities you place on the floor before God. If you have to, make little cards. Write out every group you belong to and lay it before God. And say, all of these groups that I belong to, not that there's anything necessarily wrong with them, but I lay them at your feet because they are all nothing compared to you. I surrender them all to you. I will not find pride in them. I will find pride in Christ. So you surrender all of your tribal identities to God, and then you spend some time confessing your sins. Ask for forgiveness for any time in your life that you have allowed one of those tribal identities to compete with Christ. When you've allowed either your race or your economic class, your education status, or your your politics to be as important or more important than the fact that you are in Christ. That's idolatry. So confess that to God. Confess if you've ever been mean or or cruel or or uncharitable towards another group. Whether that's you've, you've told a joke that was offensive, you've done something mean, you've made an assumption about somebody just based on the color of their skin or whether they went to college or not. Confess that to God. Admit that to God because that's sin. So it begins with humility. We humble ourselves before God. Second step, we initiate. We initiate with those who are different. And, and by initiate, what I mean is you don't wait for them to come to you. <laughs> you don't wait for them to accommodate to you. You take the step. You initiate with those who are different. And I'll give you three steps. Initiate, first I mean invite. You invite people who are different into your life to grab breakfast, to grab lunch, to go get coffee, to come into your home and have a meal with you, to be part of your life. So find somebody who's from a different racial group, a different economic group, a different ethnic group, a different political persuasion, whatever it is, and invite them in. Ask them to to come and have lunch with you or have a meal with you. If you don't know who to invite, we've got an easy solution for you in the foyer today. Once you go through these doors, there's like a big blue wall, dark wall. There's a bunch of cards taped to it. Those are international students who came to the big giveaway a few weeks ago to get furniture and told us they would love to have a meal in the home of an American because they never have. Well, how convenient. Most of you are Americans. (laughs) Many of you have a home. So you can invite them in. So just go grab one card. Take that card off the wall. It'll tell you who the person is. It'll tell you any dietary restrictions. It'll give you contact information. Grab the card and then contact them and invite them over. All we're asking you to commit to is literally one meal and see where it goes from there. So invite them into your home. Don't wait for them to come to you. Second, learn. Learn from those who are different. And, And by learning, what do I mean? Well, a lot of times when we sit down with somebody who is different than us, We come to that conversation with the belief that the most important thing in this moment is that I am understood. That is a lie. The most important thing in that moment is that you understand. The most important thing for you to do in that moment is to listen. So for me, what that means is ask questions. 
When you sit down with somebody who's different, ask questions about how do they see reality? How do they practice family? What does their walk with God look like? What, what do politics look like to them? What does education or economics look like to them? Learn from them. Okay, that's, that's the goal is, is to learn, not to win. I have a professor um, from seminary who I, I respect more than I can put into words. His name is Celestin, and he started and led a ministry in Africa that sought to bring about um, reconciliation in Christ among warring tribes. And, and he talked about what does that take to bring reconciliation between people who hate each other. Well, if you're going to be a reconciler, that means you give up your right to be right. You give up your right to be right. You don't need to be heard. You don't need to prove yourself right. That's not important in this moment. What is important? You learn. You listen. You engage. You initiate. Okay, so learn from others. That's the goal. Not to defend myself or my tribe, but to learn from others. So we invite, we learn, and we serve. And by serve, I mean that we find practical ways to serve people who are part of tribes or groups that are less privileged than we are. Okay, what, what I mean is that you do what the Jews were supposed to do. You recognize your incredible privileges from God and look for ways to share them with those who were not born or raised in that privileged status. Now, this is a really convenient moment to talk about the concept of white guilt. You hear a lot about that in the news. What is white guilt? Well, the idea is, it's kind of a question, should I feel guilty for all of the privileges I've enjoyed in life by virtue of being white. Well, biblically, the answer is no. There's no guilt in that. Look at the Jews. The Jews are never told, hey, you should feel guilty because you got all these blessings from God. Guilt isn't the right word. The right word is responsible. That's the concept that the Bible lays out for us. The privileges, the blessings you have received in life don't make you guilty. They make you responsible. To share with those who have not. That principle is throughout the Bible. So rich people were obligated by God to share their wealth with the poor. Those who were landowners were obligated by God to share their crops with those who did not own land. Those who had families were obligated to open their doors to the widows and the orphans who did not. So the biblical principle is whatever privileges you've received in life, you are responsible To share them with someone who has not enjoyed them. So for me, have I, by virtue of being white, enjoyed privileges in this life? The answer is absolutely. Many privileges. I won't list them all. Just a few that came to my mind in writing out these notes. Uh, I realized as I thought back to childhood, from kindergarten until 11th grade, all of my teachers were white. What did that mean for me? Well, that meant that the people I'm looking up to in authority over me as role models, they all look like me. That wasn't true for my minority classmates. Another example I thought about, um, growing up in my town, I knew a lot of police officers, and they all looked like me and talked like me. For that reason, it never crossed my mind to be afraid of the police. Is that a privilege? Yes, that is. Third example that came to my mind, I grew up in a family with uh, stable parents who were both college-educated. That's a massive privilege. And so I look at those privileges and what do they mean? Well, um, my hard work in life has something to do with the success I've enjoyed, but also the privileges I was born with, that has a lot to do with it too. 
And what God wants me to do is recognize that. He doesn't want me to feel guilty for that. He wants me to recognize it and say, thank you, God, for these incredible privileges you've allowed in my life. Now that I recognize them and give thanks for them, who can I share them with? If you are a person born into privilege by virtue of the color of your skin, the education level of your parents, or the stability of your home, you are not guilty for those privileges, but you are responsible to recognize them, to name them, to give thanks for them, and then to find a practical way to share them with people who were not born with those privileges. That's what it means to be in the family of God. We are obligated to share our blessings, our privileges with others. So if we know Jesus, we are required to step out, to initiate with others who are different than us. Third, we are responsible to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, we believe the only solution to racism and bigotry and xenophobia and all of these kind of divisions is the gospel. Jesus is the one who slays pride and fear in the human heart, but that's only true for the person who comes to Jesus. So if we want to cure the ills we see in our country, we need to be proclaiming the good news of Jesus. That's the most important, most effective thing we can do. So I'll bring you back. What did I say last week? I'm a broken record. I give you the same application every week. Who are you sharing the good news of Jesus with? Who are the two people? Picture them in your mind right now. Two people by name who you know who don't know Jesus. Every one of us should have two people in mind. If you don't, you need to go meet more people. Okay, so two people in your life who don't know Jesus, I want you to pray for them by name here in a moment and then throughout this week. I want you to pray that God will soften their hearts and open their eyes to the gospel and that he will use you to proclaim the good news of Jesus to them because that's their only hope for peace with God and others. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are a God of peace. You are not pleased by division, by hatred, by strife, by bigotry. None of that is part of your plan or part of your desire. You don't want that to be part of your kingdom. You are a God who loves peace and and this beautiful supernatural peace that unites into one family, people who could have never gotten along apart from Jesus. We praise you for the variety here in the church. We praise you and pray that you would grow that, that you would use us to reach people who are different than us. But we pray that in order to do that, Lord, please humble us. Please confront us with our sins when we have looked down on other tribes, other groups, when we have thought ourselves superior. We pray, please forgive us for that. We pray, please humble us uh, enough that we can learn from other people, that we can learn from other groups, that we can reach out and initiate with them and invite them into our lives and, and learn from them and serve them. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to be selfless like Jesus. And we pray, finally, God, that you would help us to faithfully proclaim the good news that there is transcendent peace available in your Son. That because of Jesus' death and resurrection, humans can be reconciled to you and to one another. I pray that we would be bold to proclaim that message this week to people who don't yet know you. Help us to be faithful, Heavenly Father. We thank you for this family you've invited us into. May we reflect the peace of your Son for his glory. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Have a great week.